So, so tell me, who are you and what is it that you do? Yeah, Atuma, Miyahuen, Anette William Madrigal Jr., Net Nakutanga Kuia, and Achai Pishantechon, Ipa Iba. I'm Pempalo and Tommy Iba. So I introduced myself in our language, the Kuia language. Uh, my name is Will Madrigal Jr., I'm an enrolled member of the Kuia Band of Indians. And I'm also a uh, language teacher uh, and a PhD student in Native American studies at UC Riverside, where I also teach Kauia. Um, I also uh, live on the Palma Reservation, which is uh, my wife's reservation here in San Diego County. And um, I'm a culture bearer, a researcher, bird singer, and community member. Um, yeah, and I um, uh, have been learning the language my whole life. I'm still a student of the language and hopefully um, the language will continue to be shared and will be cultivated by the next generations to come because we almost lost it not too long ago. Oh, really? How so? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there are many instances in history where we could have lost it mm -hmm. uh, because of pressures from the colonizer, um, whether it was uh, the United States government or uh, Spanish government, the Mexican government before, so we had three waves of genocide in California, like other California tribes, the Cuyas, the Lucenos, the Serranos, the Tongva, the, um, the Kumiai, you know, um, just a few of many tribes just in our region, um, both from the ocean to the mountains. And uh, my tribe was, was in the mountains, but the most detrimental impact to um, our language and losing our language was because of the missions in California, you know, 21 missions throughout the coast, all on the coast of California <clears throat> were taking Indian families away from their homes and from their villages and putting them into the missions and not allowing them to leave and indoctrinating them in Spanish culture and religion. And so um, they forbade everyone to speak their language. They wanted them to speak Spanish um, or Latin um, they wanted them to stop acting uh, like who they were, uh, meaning their uh, gathering practices, everything from um, the way they spoke to the way they dressed, everything had to be changed, their hair. Uh, <clears throat> so that, that was really uh, detrimental to, to the language because you had a, almost a whole generation or two generations that were discouraged and punished from speaking the language. So that, that was in the um, late 1700s. And then you get to 100 years later, um, we had Indian boarding schools that were enacted by the United States. Again, um, taking Indian children away from their parents and away from their clan homes and putting them in these schools that were overcrowded and, and under, underfunded. Um, again, forbidding them to speak their language Forgetting, for forbidding the men and from wearing their hair long, uh, cutting their hair to military style. Um, they just do, doing drills and, and uh, had, had very, um, very traumatic experience for the kids. And those that survived are still, there's still a few that survived from, uh, you know, that, that period from 1880 all the way to the 1960s. 
So it's a lot of years, right, of indoctrination of forced assimilation is what it, what it is. Um, and so our language suffered again and our songs suffered again because we had generations of kids that had forgotten the language um, because they were punished so severely. Um, but then there was a resurgence in the 70s and 80s, partly due to the American Indian movement and what uh, the- Right, right, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So it encouraged Indians, Native Americans from all over the world to uh, re-embrace and reconnect. And so here in Southern California, we, we definitely got the message and we started to uh, mobilize different programming. Um, it was just grassroots. It was just a lot of times it was just one elder who knew the language as a kid and started practicing that and conveying that and sharing that wisdom and knowledge through songs and stories and history. And so growing up, I was one of those lucky few to, on the reservation to go to uh, not only their houses, the elders' houses that were teaching, but the classes that they organized, the real small classes, where we just simply just brought a little bit of food together, sat down at the same table, and listened to the stories and songs and the language. That's incredible, and, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a great way to grow up. Um, again, a lot, a lot of it was because um, the leadership of my parents. My father is a language teacher and a culture bearer and a bird singing elder. And so I was lucky and fortunate to grow up with him. And my mom also is, is uh, Luceno Indian. Um, and, and, you know, her people have a strong culture as well here in Southern California. So just a neighboring tribe to the Cahuillas. Lucenos always grew up next to the Cahuillas. And so um, I grew up in a household of nine kids or nine of us. And then my parents, so 11 people. Um, and uh, we just tried to learn and do as much as we could uh, growing up. But at the same time, you know, making uh, education a priority. Um, education was always at the forefront of our family, as well as uh, the culture. So they really went hand in hand. There was no conflict there, right? Um, so I was the first in my family, my immediate family, to go to college. Um, my dad went to college at UC Riverside. I followed in his footsteps, and I'm getting a doctorate there at UC Riverside in Native Studies and History. And uh, my mom went to Haskell Indian Nations and got an uh, associate's degree there in the 70s. Um, so I just, you know, come from a long line of leaders and really right. fortunate to, do, to have that, you know, and have that guidance. <clears throat> And uh, my wife as well is also a scholar. Um, she's, uh, she works for the Rincon tribe and she has a master's in museum studies. So she's all about preserving the material culture as well as the, um, as the, as the, the written culture, the spoken culture, right? Um, so it's, it's just nice to see how not just myself and my family, but other families are now starting to be more and more interested in preserving and protecting our heritage in various ways. You know, everything from um, archeologists, becoming archeologists, becoming doctors, becoming lawyers, you know, be, you know and, and, and even politicians, you know, to carry on the fight with the government, with the state of California, you know, to get our land back. And also with the US government, you know, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs who has their thumb on us um, 
So, so yeah, I, I really appreciated growing up that way and that legacy of um, resiliency, really. That's, that's who our people were. We were resilient. We could adapt to any situation that came our way and we made the best of it with, you know, our spirituality and our humor, you know, that really kept us going forward as a, as a community and then um, for individuals that were having trouble with, you know, attending schools, you know, and, and doing things um, that just weren't a good space for Native people to be in. You know, the racism, the genocide, it all continues even today, you know, it just takes different forms. So, so that's why I wanted to go to the university to analyze and figure out what was going on with us, um, how to address those problems that we have in the, on the reservation, and um, how do we keep fighting to protect our sovereignty, really, our right to govern ourselves, our right to be who we are as Native people, and more importantly, the right to speak our language, to speak it, to teach it, to use it, to celebrate it, because um, it wasn't too long ago that we were outlawed from even speaking our language or being who we were. It wasn't until the Self-Determination Act that it was finally official the United States did not want us to be forcibly assimilated anymore. Well, so, it, long ago, yeah. Uh, it's very interesting about your, your story that you said because um, well, uh, just like we were talking about before we started recording, is that um, my grandpa, my grandpa was uh, was full blooded uh, Kauai, and um, only uh, my whole life I've always wondered about you know um, uh, the well. I, before I get ahead of myself, um, I always wondered about basically um, my native culture, especially being Native American, and I've always been curious, but only until re uh, recently, like I told you, I was super compelled to actually, um, I mean, simply to just reach out to someone, you know, uh, just like yourself, uh, to learn more about it, um, and I really do think that more people are wanting to learn about uh their, I guess you could say, ancient roots are just going back to the roots. You see it everywhere, not just with Native Americans. I see it with um, a lot of uh, people who are, um, uh, I see more people that typically have uh, like Nordic blood. Uh, um, I see more people like with tattoos. Um, how do I say? Just more people wanting to learn about uh, their their history. And I think it's really in super interesting that like I'm finding more and more people that really do. But this subject is really, it really is near and dear to me to, especially to hear everything that you have to say. Um, going back to what I was saying about your story is, um, so the thing things that I heard about my grandpa was that, as I told you, my grandpa was born on the reservation. Uh, at some point, his mom gave him up for adoption. And I, I believe uh, that he was put in a boarding school, like you, like you were talking about. And he was one of those uh, kids where, uh, you know, everything that he learned growing up, they pretty much had to, uh, I guess you could say, unlearn. Um, and like I said, he didn't actually learn he was Native American until he was in his 40s, which is, which is crazy. And a lot of what you talk about with your family, um, I find, uh, uh, I guess, similarities in my, um, in my own family. Um, it's just interesting. Uh, 
to see that, how do I say, it seems that, like, a number, how do I say, uh, well, basically, that I'm, I resonate with your story uh, very much because of the things I told you about my grandpa, and just I see I I see a lot of similarities in your story, and like not just with my grandpa's, but also in mine. It's just very very interesting, and it's almost just like um, if every culture is the same, like if like I don't know, Irish people had the same kind of oppression, and they all have the same story, you know. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you so. You, you told me a lot about yourself and your your family and all that. So, um, it may be a stupid question to ask, but at the end of the day, what inspired you to actually want to teach people, uh, to to get the degree you do and actually want to get out there and, uh, well, like I said, teach people. Yeah, I would have to say um, my family was a big influence on that. Obviously, you know, coming from. Uh, a family, a, a legacy of teachers and leaders, uh, many of whom, you know, had always, um, had always told us and left the message that education is important, especially in the white man's world. Right. They, the white man's world only benefits the white man and uh, the, the, all the laws are written for him. So we're always constantly coming up against that, no matter what we do. Have, um, have you ever uh, heard uh, of Russell Means? Yes, I have. Yeah, have you ever read his book, his autobiography? I I glanced at it a while back, though. But yeah, uh, I, actually, my uncle knew Russell. Oh, he really? UCR all the time. Yeah. Interesting. When he was uh, representing AIM. Uh huh. He used to come to our um, to our UCR Medicine Ways conference. In the 80s and the 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, the, it's, yeah, when you met, started mentioning out in the 70s and 80s, the first thing that came to my mind, yeah, no, I have I have his book. I, uh, I've i only read through half of it. Um, just real quick, Zoom told me that we only have 10 minutes left. If it kicks us off, I will start another one, and I'll send you a, a link for it uh, if you have the time. Do you yeah, have no, I do. Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, no, if it – says we got nine minutes left so uh if, if it kicks us off i'll just send you another one we'll just continue uh going where we're going but um so tell me about your family and what inspires you to learn and all that now um so uh obviously you have like a you have a definite connection uh you're definitely connected with the tribe but uh, are you involved with the tribe at all like um I don't know, uh, you tribal member or anything like that. I don't really know how any of that works, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny how it was set up, actually. And I just grew up uh, with it as, uh, as being normal to me. And But now I see you looking in from the outside, and it makes me think of it, how crazy of a setup it actually is. But, um, yeah, as soon as you're born, um, it's like, you know, Catholics, you get baptized, right, as, as a baby. You also get enrolled into your tribe as, as a baby. Um, usually your parents will vouch for you, or whether it's a, you have one parent or two parents, um, they'll fill out the enrollment for you uh, with a and submit it to the tribal office. And then right. you get put on a roll. And a roll is just a, a list of, of names who are, who are registered for the right. tribe, right? So <clears throat> unfortunately... 
you can only pick one. You can't pick, you know, both of your parents. Uh-huh. They might be from different tribes. Like in my case, my mom was from La Jolla and my dad's from Kauia. So I got enrolled in Kauia. And um, so what that means is you get a, you get a, you get a enrollment card. It has your, it's like an ID, you know, like right. an ID. Mm-hmm. now they look more like government IDs, but really <laughs> not, <laughs> there's no real benefit on the, in the outside world for having that. Yeah, absolutely. But what the benefits are for being a tribal member is that you can partake in tribal member um, government affairs, right? So civic duties, like going to the um, tribal council, general council meetings, where they discuss, you know, governance, laws issues um whole agendas of that affect the 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 Kauia leadership and Kauia community um so that's that's always been something i've been involved in um you also have the opportunity to be elected to uh uh governmental offices so uh-huh. chairman chair have you heard of that chair people i've i've uh, seen it i've, I've seen it on one of the websites yeah yeah, so usually you have to be uh, an adult member. Uh-huh. So until you're 18 years of all age, um, you you can get benefits from the tribe, right? So whether that's scholarship money or Christmas parties, you know, uh, so, you know, money for supplies for school. Tribes have different programs that for benefits for their members. So all the way up until 18, you you can take advantage of that. And then once you're 18, you're introduced to the tribe as a adult member, right? Mm-hmm. Um, nothing changes. You don't have to fill out anything. Um, but once you're an adult member, you can run for office and you can get, um, you know, there might be other benefits that you might be uh, like tribal revenue. Then you're eligible to receive tribal revenues from a tribal uh, operation or um, uh, enterprise, right? Right. So various enterprises. One of them is gaming and casinos. Other other enterprises are like um, solar, agriculture, uh, timber for tribes up in the, in the north. Um, you know, etc. Businesses, basically. Right. Yeah. I, I had no idea. That's interesting. Uh huh. So there are tribal-owned businesses both on and off the reservation. Because a lot of times the reservations aren't really. They're not big enough. They're like tiny little, I call them concentration camps. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. no, really, that's, that's what they are. Like they didn't care uh, uh-huh. drive or didn't. They just wanted us out of the way. So they, they picked the most rural areas. They didn't even check if we had adequate water or yeah. right. But they mm-hmm. focused on that and they said, these are executive order reservations in, in California. Other reservations throughout the, the, the country were made through treaties. So they're a lot bigger, right? Uh, down here, like Saboba and Kauia and Rincon, there some of them are only a couple hundred acres, which is nothing for a tribe of five hundred members and their families, right? To, to function, so, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So as you can probably tell, um, we struggled to survive on that little patch of land, but we did, and. Um, so yeah, some of our enterprises are on the reservation, off the reservation, because we can still buy land as a tribe, and uh, it's called fee land because we pay, you know, taxes on it just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Then, but the reservation itself and that other fee land that we get, we can also put into trust. So then it becomes 
official federal land and, and reservation. Interesting. And the reservation, yeah. And we've only been allowed to do that successfully probably in the last 50 years. Um, and then reservations have been around for 150 years. Uh, why so, have you guys only been lucky? Just uh, haven't had the means. They, they, they've kept us in poverty. The BIA has really, you know, um, they've really dropped the ball. They've, they've messed up their fiduciary responsibility to make sure that we have enough to eat, make sure that we have enough to prosper, you know, and live as community. Um, so, so we only got to expand the reservations when we started generating the money to do that. And so you land outright. It's kind of the economy that needs to, I mean, sure, there's other things that need to be developed there, but in, basically in a, uh, an economy that is that it is what needs to kind of grow to help that place. Right, right. We didn't have any, any economy. We were in poverty until right. probably 60s, 70s, 80s. Some tribes didn't even have uh, electricity until the 90s. On the <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, yeah, yeah, I, I believe yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, I've heard even in uh, South North Dakota, uh, yeah, they live in pretty bad conditions. Yeah, I, yeah. I completely believe you. But we lack basic necessities to, you know, uh, to live normally. So we're mm -hmm. in survival mode. And so government rations were given called commodities, USDA commodities. And those were really unhealthy for us because instead of our traditional diet of plants and animals, and seeds and herbs, um, we were given uh, butter and lard and just, you know, the worst quality of food, you know, um, not even just the ingredients were poor quality, um, no variety as far as um, fruits and vegetables. Where I grew up, everything was in cans. So we had That's cans. That's crazy. Yeah. That's canned crazy, man. <laughs> yeah. Canned stews, canned you know, like it was just bad, you know, and but that's that's all we had, you know. I mean, the economy, like I said, there was no economy mm -hmm. surviving, and so a lot of us grew up surviving on those rations, especially large families, right? Without the means to um, to 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 adequately feed your families, you had no choice, you know. So those commodities were essential. But later in life, um, you know, re more recently, the commodities got a little bit better. We started getting vegetables. We started getting uh, bison meat, you know, which is really cool, um, really healthy. But uh, but yeah, it, it did its it did its it, it took its toll because we have the highest rate of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes of any yeah. minority group. I can only imagine. I've I've heard. Yeah, Mel, I, I I completely believe you, man. It, it's 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 it really is crazy. The thing about talking to to you is like you know I'm pretty sure everybody. I I myself have heard all kinds of stories about what goes on, you know, on reservations and how Native Americans are treated, and I'm sure other people have too. But you pretty much solidify like um. You pretty much, you know, you yourself experienced it, and you're alive today, you know, as we're speaking May 31st, you know. Okay. So where we, where we left off was you're talking about 
um, which is relevant to one of the questions I have. Basically, the uh, living standards on the reservation, you're talking about uh, when you're growing up, you had uh, the explanation you used was uh, packed cans of meat and uh, talking about um, uh, how, like, I've, I've heard stories about, you know, uh, living conditions on reservations, and I'm sure anyone who else who listens to this uh has two and you've pretty much uh, confirmed our, our all the stories about what life is like on a reservation and it's uh you know it, it's it's horrific <laughs> i mean uh to actually hear because i've never actually heard anybody uh you know uh say what in person actually what the you know living standards are like living on a reservation and to actually hear it come from someone's mouth who actually experienced it i mean dude yeah. <laughs> you know it's heavy stuff uh it's I, I, I should also uh, disclose to um or disclaimer that you know everybody's different but um um situations obviously had to improve so i'm talking from when the reservations were first uh, created as concentration camps back in the 18, um, you know, uh, 1880s to 1920s, you know, 1930s, it was still really, really bad. Um, it wasn't until like, you know, we started to get our own Indian health, um, healthcare systems and clinics and things like that. Yeah, my, uh, actually, yeah. I, I can even, uh, I believe because my mom's a re a registered with the tribe, I actually, myself, I've been out to the clinic a few times out in, uh, I don't know, somewhere near San Bernardino, uh, and use the services out there, but, um, yeah, so I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so once we got those clinics, um, health improved a little bit, and uh, we had to fight for that, uh, my grandparents, and their generation that fought for um, the funding for these clinics and they've been going strong till today, you know, um, bringing in that much needed kind of Western medicine, right? Right. Uh, and dent dentistry. However, we continue to, to practice our ways of health and well-being, our uh, indigenous ways. And that included using the plants and animals for food and for medicine. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say, you know, things greatly improved in the 60s, 70s and 80s, as far as having the freedoms to go back to our ways and our traditional foods, traditional medicines, um, finding work off the reservation, right? right. Um, just improving every generation, you know. Um, and then obviously with the, you know, the start of, of gaming, the gaming uh, enterprises, um, things that continue to improve, right? So, right. So now it's it's not a scary place at all now. Interesting. Yeah, very, yeah it's very it's very um, family oriented. It's it's like you know the best way to compare it is a, a closed community, mm -hmm. a community that protects itself and each other, a community that thrives on um, the success of its children, of its youth, um, strong leadership, right? Um, sovereign right the, the whole concept of sovereignty um that was created by europeans really right to describe self-sufficiency of a nation right right and so we are self-sufficient nation however we do you know work go to school off the reservation uh we get our groceries obviously from the grocery store 
<laughs> our houses are the same as everybody else's. Um, we, we are culturally a, a, a secure cultural community, right? right. So we're not, we're not disconnected from the world at all. We have internet, we have everything everybody else has. But culturally, we, we keep to ourselves and we keep our, our, our ceremonies, our language, things like that, um, pretty close, you know. So that's at the forefront, yeah. Right, right. Before we go on to the next subject, I got to turn off this air conditioning really, really quick. One second. <laughs> All right, so, so we've talked about a number of different things, especially history and, you know, uh, you, your experience and all that stuff. And now I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into uh, Kauia culture, language especially. And um, just for anyone who's listening, could you tell me what region of uh, the U.S. Um, the Kauia tribe comes from and... Uh, Examples of its culture, what it's known for, um, things like that. Yeah, until recently, our origin story, our creation story, and a lot of our cultural ways, like I said, were kept within the reservation community, within the village community, um, for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons was um, so that it wouldn't get exploited, right? We were protective of that information. We still are, uh, the knowledge. Um, and we want to ensure that it's not lost and that it's passed down, right, to the next seven generations, uh, at least. And um, <clears throat> so it wasn't so recently that scientists started coming onto the reservations, wanting to study us. Around the turn of the century is when a lot of that happened. Um, some notable uh, anthropologists or Krober, um, a guy named um, John P. Body Harrington. Um, these guys got famous. They got famous in academia as well as in you know, American culture as uh, scientists that came and studied the, the Indians of California mm -hmm. as well as other places. So um, there's reasons, be because of that reason, you know, um, we, we wanted to safeguard our, our knowledge because um, they they exploited our knowledge and the way that they wrote about us. They didn't they didn't consult with us and ask if it, if that was okay, uh, if the if the information that they had written down was accurate. But the the uh, the other side of the coin on that was that we also had uh, later um, after they passed away, these researchers they left volumes and volumes of archives in the institution that they're working at or with their students. So <clears throat> as time went on, as we became scholars and went to college, we, we understood that we had access to those archives too. So we were able to piece together um, gaps in our history, in our, in our culture, in our language, things that were taken from us long ago. But we are Southern California people. Um, our creation story is at the foundation of our religion, foundation of our, our life ways. And it tells us a, a pretty awesome story. It's an epic story. Mm -hmm. How It's an epic story and how the first life was created in the universe. And then how the, the planet that we call Earth, Demol, 
we call Temal, um, was created first, and then the people were created, right? Everybody was created together. Um, there weren't just Kawiyas that were created. <laughs> there were multiple <clears throat> types of people, of groups that were created and, and then later dispersed across the globe. And so we knew from very early on because of our stories that we weren't alone, that we weren't the only civilization or the only people on earth, but we had relations that were created with us in the beginning, but lived on the other side of the world. So we knew about the Europeans. We knew about the Africans. We knew about Australian people. Um, and in some cases we would travel there and we would meet with them and we talk with them and we get a medicine from them, you know, and we bring it back home. Um, so we were very, very, very much not stationary people. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big uh, stereotype about Indians. We were only stationary when they forced us to be on those reservations. Right. Yeah. I am I'm, I'm going. I think every indigenous peoples were nomadic. No. It's not that we we're a nomadic. I think the, the term nomadic is wrong. Uh huh. What we, did, what we did do was we traveled in migration patterns. Oh, okay. Uh huh. We weren't wandering around aimlessly like nomads. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We knew exactly where we were going. Every step that we took, someone had previously taken that same step. So we followed the stars. We navigated through the stars. We navigated through the different formations in the land, like the mountains. We had names for every mountain, every hill. And that's how we knew where we were going and where we had been. Um, we navigated through the stars at night. Um, and um, we learned multiple languages, not just our own, so that when we went traveling into someone else's territory, they spoke a different language. We had to be able to communicate with them to get you know, their permission, right, to, to go through their territory. So we had a very strict, you know, kind of... Uh, protocol on, on how we did that um and we still do we still do mm -hmm. as people we don't go into other people's territories and other people's lands without without asking for their permission and you know and folks that visit us we extend the same hospitality you know we try to be hospitable in the way that we welcome them you know uh, we host them as best we can we we really show the good uh, a good position, a good, uh, we put a good foot forward, right? And we did that with the Europeans when they first came, all the way back in the, um, will be the 14th century, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nomadics, or if you want, <laughs> Vikings or Nordics, you know, came to this continent. Um, but, yeah, so I would say, where, where are the Kauia people from? We're from right here in Southern California, otherwise known as Riverside, San Bernardino County. So you can imagine, you know, those are the biggest counties in the United States. Combined. Are they? Yeah, they are. Oh, I had no idea. Land-wise, <laughs> land space-wise, acreage, those are the largest counties in the United States. Oh, damn, I had so, no idea. That's crazy. So we were, yeah, if you can imagine from east to west, so the east side, the Colorado River, you know where that's at? The border of, of Arizona. Right. All the way west to almost to the ocean. Mm -hmm. And then from uh, kind of right below the high desert, 
Mm-hmm. So, um, San Bernardino, um, where San Manuel is, uh, Big Bear area, all the way down south to uh, almost to the Mexican border right there, to uh, the Salton Sea or Lake Cahuilla. Yeah, the notorious Salton Sea, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. Lake Cahuilla is what it was called. Yeah, Lake Cahuilla. I was watching something about uh, about, about uh, that whole area. The, uh, uh, sometimes when I'd go hiking, like out by Mount Baldy, uh, yeah, I would I would find these um, like holes in the in like the granite out there. I don't know, granite, but some kind of rock. And uh, it turns out those holes, like those cyl- cylindric kind of holes, are actually used for grinding acorns and stuff. And I and like this, I, I barely watched a video about this yesterday. And like this whole time, I was like. I've been walking by these things for like my whole life and like, <laughs> and, um, and apparently some, uh, like probably if, if not all, then a number of those holes are probably from actually the Kahuilla tribe out there, uh, doing, um, you know, grinding whatever they need to and all that. It's just crazy. Like I had no idea that so much, uh, history, especially, um, um, history regarding the tribe is, is out here. Um, I just thought it was a desert <laughs> this whole time, but you know, yeah, there's so much history out here, and, and I, I really want to learn more about it. Actually, mm. yeah, I I had the same um, enthusiasm too growing up, hearing the stories about those places and those features. You know, those mortars and how we used them and what they were used for and when. You know, some of them are hundreds or even. Thousands, thousands. yeah. Oh, yeah, thousands, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, I went to UCR for anthropology because I wanted to be an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. So I became a professional archaeologist myself. And so I've worked all over our territory, um, even down south. And um, I was trained in Durango, Colorado, also to do field archaeology methodologies. And <clears throat> so I made a career out of out of doing cultural resources management. Um, and uh, so recently I, I did, up until recently I was doing that um, as, as a represent, I was a tribal representative in the field and then uh, training representatives in the field to recognize these sites so that we mm-hmm. can protect them. So just what you're talking about, recognizing those sites there that may or may not have been previously recorded by archeologists in the past, but um, are preserved and protected. Their integrity is protected as well, because that is our our culture in the ground, in the rocks, um, and it still has a lot of stories to tell. You know, and yeah. What, yeah. I, I, was it out in Idlewild? Actually, some guy. Ah, there was like a some. I had some. There's some rock out there um, near some little town. You know, very vague. <laughs> uh, it's this one, Kyle. Yeah. This is the rock above Idlewild. I, I can't remember. You know, it's this was like a, a little boulder, and there was actually okay. a painting on there. And the the part of the I believe like the ritual was that like uh, someone's uh, female's grandmother or mother would take them to there to like pretty much say you've pretty much gone into motherhood, and they would continue the drawing on the on the rock itself. And apparently, you can still go see it. Although I have to find exactly where, but it is in Idlewild, and I definitely love to go see that because it's still there today yeah my reservation is about 15 minute drive from there so That's i go there to idlewild 
um, to to see those sites. I've seen that site you're talking about. Oh yeah. Stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, oh, so I worry know, about it. I yeah. can only imagine because it's just. Yeah. yeah, I can. I'm. That's that's exactly what I was thinking when I saw it. I was just like, man, someone stupid is gonna. You know, I can only imagine. I right. see all the. I see all the beer cans and stuff that are out in the mountains and all that stuff. So I can only imagine the stupid stuff someone would do to it. Exactly. You know, I was I was afraid of that. So that's the reason I became an archaeologist so that I could study the laws that were supposed to protect those areas. There, yeah, unfortunately, there are very few laws. That that's crazy. And even fewer um, uh, people are prosecuted that do desecrate and deface and vandalize just because nobody cares, right? It's yeah, yeah, crime. absolutely. It's like white-collar crime, basically, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is, unfortunately. And until the laws are strengthened and new laws are, are, are written, um, we'll con I'll continue to worry, but I'll continue to... Um, educate folks also and tell them you know make sure that they're aware like hey when you guys go camping like you do you know most families do every summer you're going to come across stuff like this mm -hmm. but what do you do when you, if you do you can admire it you can still enjoy it mm -hmm. please leave it alone yeah yeah don't get your 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 filthy fingers all over it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care yeah. what your your tagging name is yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> yeah and i know uh, i know yeah do not destroy the integrity of the culture that's there. That's my right. people. You yeah. Know, that's they left that for us for a reason so that we can learn from it. And, um, yeah, you, you unfortunately there's so much that we lost and continue to lose today. But um, I think there are other you know avenues that we've kind of broken into in other spaces where we can actually draw a lot of our uh, our knowledge from as well you know there's the knowledge from those sites and then there's the archival knowledge and things that um, were, were taken from us that we can reclaim and that's where we get a lot of language material right so, uh -huh. tell me about that yeah, for the for, okay so that I mentioned a couple of guys in the turn of the century that made a, a living a career a reputation became infamous because of going out to Indian communities and extracting knowledge, right? So it was a very extracting process and that nothing was reciprocated or given back to the communities. They just kind of came and, and just sucked up all the knowledge and left, you know? And as you can imagine, that's uh, pretty pretty unethical, right? Pretty right. down pretty dirty, you know? It's just, and that's how it, we felt, you know? And so ever since then, we've, We've hated anthropologists and archaeologists and linguists, especially that come to uh, to do the same thing, right? And we've turned them away, you know. And then we realize, hey, why don't we become those experts? Yeah, absolutely. Said, hey, that's, yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, we've been sending our kids to get degrees. And I don't know if you heard, but uh, just this February this year, the University of California is making it free tuition to all California Indians. So you might want to take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah, you told me about that. That's super interesting. Yeah, I definitely yeah. look into. That. I'm gonna write that down actually. Yeah, write <laughs> that down, dude, because it's it's pretty big deal um, as as it goes to protecting and preserving. But yeah, the language itself, um, as I mentioned to you before, really really took a lot of hits 
at different points in our history. Um, the first one was the missions uh, that started in the 1700s, ended in the 1800s. Um, and then the second wave of uh, colonization that really, really was heavy was the boarding school period. Mm -hmm. so boarding schools were run by um, either a, a religious order or by um, the Bureau of Indian Education themselves. Uh, you've heard of Sherman? Sure. Sherman Indian High School? I swear I have, but not, I mean, maybe years ago I've heard of it. But I swear I've heard of it, though. Uh-huh. Tell me yeah, about it. that would be the closest boarding school to you. I mean, there are hundreds of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Sherman is uh, one of the last ones to actually um, stop their their uh, assimilation assimilationist type of of school of institution and actually became a pro cultural institution with uh, kids learning their culture mm -hmm. and celebrating it and um, Native American uh, teachers that were hired to actually teach the kids and that. That was, you know, complete 180 from what it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so instead of being punished and beaten for speaking your language at the boarding school, now we have people like my Aunt Lori Sisquak, who's uh, been teaching there for 30 years and who runs the Sherman Indian Museum there on campus. Um, she's teaching uh, uh, Kauia kids their language, that it's okay to be Kauia. Um, she's teaching all the other kids that are there, whether they're Navajo, Hopi, Miwok, Pomo, that they should they should go and uh, learn their culture from their their families mm -hmm. and bring that to Sherman to share the cultural diversity with all students there and her and and the teachers too, and that's what they enjoy. That's what they celebrate at Sherman Indian High School today. Oh man, that's inc this is incredible, actually, man. I, I love all this, all, all the stuff that you're telling me. It's, it's, it's incredible. I, actually, I'm very glad to hear all this, and I'm more than um, honored to be talking to someone who's actively uh, part of it and doing it. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, like I said, I'm still learning, <clears throat> you know, uh, pushing 40 right now, and I feel like I've, I've barely touched the the surface really I mean, there's so much there you know and there's so much to be gained for our communities because i really want to see our communities get stronger you know absolutely and more more you know um positive you know energy coming out of our our communities you know there's just so much you know that we've endured trauma wise in our in our history mm -hmm. there's so many uh, problems too like alcoholism drug abuse um incarceration things like that that are still affecting us so uh, i really think that the way the way forward is um learning uh, as best we can about our past absolutely absolutely no i i, I, lo I love all you everything you're telling me man um uh, one of the things i want to really ask you one of the big things i wanted to ask you one of the reasons why i actually wanted to have you on here is i want to talk about is uh uh, language um you know when we when you first introduced yourself i thought you were speaking chinese you know it, <laughs> to me i have no idea because i have never actually even heard uh the language myself um uh no i've never actually heard anybody are, are you speaking fluently do you 
I don't think anybody speaks it fluently because uh-huh. fluency is kind of like, you know, in the eye of the beholder. In other oh, words, it's a it's not a useful concept for for Indian tribes, you know, because it's it's basically a measurement that that is originated outside of our culture. It has no bearing on our culture. Right, right, right. But what we consider, you know, acceptable, I guess, or, or favorable is that folks are just using it as best they can. Yeah. And, and that's as simple as just um, saying uh, or introducing yourself in Kauia, um, saying who your family is, you know, uh, just simple conversations is what we're encouraging folks to, to can do. You, yeah. Can you give me some examples of uh, yeah. how the language is uh what what one what it sounds like and two um how it just differs from the english language so that anybody can kind of understand when somebody's speaking it (laughs) yeah an example i like to use in my classes is just the simply the word for hello the word hello it doesn't mean hello per se uh is how we say it Mm -hmm. so greet someone no matter who they are the proper way is to say Mm-hmm. Um, is a word that is directly asking what you know how your heart is you know uh, how oh. is it today? Mm-hmm. and uh, we have this sound mm-hmm. that they don't have English yeah so that's cool because because you, you know you just you got to get used to, to saying it you know I tell the students um, the simplest way is just saying hello that's how you start to speak the language right right you know um and then what do you usually follow that up with in english you're usually like how are you right right uh, or you know if you're speaking to a group of people how are how are all of you you know and um and and there's different ways to say that in korea but the simplest way is just to say hello uh and it's a question. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. And it's saying, what, you know, hello, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Hello, how are you doing? How does your heart feel today? Right. And, um, and so that's, that's the beginning of the dialogue, a basic dialogue in Korea. And so what I found and colleagues, my colleagues have found were also Korea teachers and, and Kauia linguists um, is that if you teach uh, dialogue to uh, students that have no exposure to Kauia or very little even, um, they catch on. They catch on because they, they realize that they're not just learning a set of vocabulary words or a set of adjectives or some other type of language mechanics, but they're using they're utilizing something that they can use in, right in the, in the future right and that they can teach their kids if they wanted to you know it's not it's not it's not complicated you know it's it's a phrase and how you learn it is you use it you, you practice it over yeah and over. absolutely you don't have to think about like oh do I have the right participle or do I have the right noun verb subject conjugation uh, agreement conjugations right and yeah <laughs> all, the, all that you learn in high school english english right or even in college um 
that's all tertiary. I mean, you'll, you'll learn that, but you're going to learn it in a different way. Interesting. Yeah, you're going to learn it, you know, you're going to learn it different methodology, an indigenous methodology. Mm -hmm. so, so that's what um, my colleague and I put together at UCR for the first um, ever, you know, Kauia language series offered by any UC, you know, and we're really proud of that. Um, we've been teaching it for about four years now. Mm -hmm. And we still have such great enthusiasm and uh, uh, feedback about the language is, is real positive from students and even if they're not Kauias, you know, cause a lot of our students, we have a few Kauias and we have a lot of who are, who are from other tribes. Mm -hmm. They said they'd rather take Kauia than having to take Spanish. <laughs> Crazy. Uh -huh. Yeah. Cause you have to take a language to, in order to graduate. Uh -huh. so it's usually like a year of, you know, whatever, a foreign language, foreign. Mm -hmm. So we got in under the foreign language requirement um, to teach Kauia. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. So we, we teach the, the dialogue, conversational Kauia, start very basic, and then gets really, really complicated to where we put together both numbers, colors, different nouns, right? And then both past tense, future tense, present tenses. We add all that in there. Um, and the way we do it is, is indigenous methods, right? Um, there's also some, uh, some great resources out there. Um, more recently, right, um, people have been writing about Kauia language. Um, both our people and, and uh, scientific allies, right? <clears throat> so I point to those. I point to the Malki Museum in Morongo because they have so many uh, texts, both on Kauia history, as well as the language, as well as plants, uh, traditional plant uses in the language. Um, so I, I would encourage you to start there, um, to go online at malkymuseum.org and check out their online catalog of books. And uh, you'll see the language grammar there. You'll see the, the dictionary there. Uh, how do you spell that? Uh, Malky, I'll put it in the chat. Oh, okay. Yeah. M-A-L-K-I museum.org. Oh, I see, I see, okay. And that's interesting, too, because that's the village, one of the original villages there in the past um, that's now on the Morongo Reservation. So before the reservation was there, it was the uh, Malki Pakiktam and uh, Wanakiktam uh, tribes or the clans. Clans are like big families, right? Of, of right. So those two families lived there um, pretty, pretty well. You know, I mean, you think it's desert, but as soon as you get up into those canyons behind Morongo on the north side, it's beautiful, lush, mm -hmm. water sources there all year round. I mean, even now they graze their cattle back there. They go hunting back there. So, um, but yeah, so Mulkey is uh, the name of the museum that's there. It was opened and operated by a tribal member uh, and a leader from, from there in 1963. And it's been successful ever since. Um, but Mulkey means to dodge in Kauia, like, you know, mm -hmm. really quick. Like dodgeball? Yeah, <laughs> kind of like dodgeball. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and the museum is actually on the village site itself, the old village site on the reservation. And you can go there anytime. It's open to the public. 
uh, open every day except Monday, um, which I encourage you to do. You know, check it out online and then um, make a trip to go out there, you know, and because they have a museum and they have exhibits there and really cool artifacts there from our people. And um, But yeah, just another great resource. Then there's also multimedia resources. Um, I like to show uh, a, a, a documentary that one of our elders, our late elders, and uh, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame for her work on the language. Oh, uh -huh. yeah. Her name is Catherine Siva Sabal, and uh, she's from the Los Coyotes, Cahuilla Indian Reservation, and Warner uh, around Warner, uh, right above Warner Springs, and. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so Catherine Sobel, she was uh, she was granted an honorary doctorate for her work as well. And uh, yeah, and fortunately she passed, she passed away in 2007. Um, but we had worked with her extensively, myself, my, my dad, uh, our community. And she left a lot of material for us to, to continue on, to carry on, right? Mm -hmm. So we honor her legacy by doing that. And now we're becoming teachers and we're doing all the workshops and programs that she used to do and and and, and we're making our, our community stronger because of that so it really yeah the language is uh, is the, the the legacy the power the strength of our ancestors because in the language we have our worldview you know it's not just a way to communicate so i always tell my students like how do you how do you see the world well, if you grew up speaking English, that's how you see the world. Mm -hmm. You can relate to everything in the world through the English language. Okay, but if you Brian, speak Korea, right. yeah, if you speak Korea, though, you, you're relating to the world in a completely different way. Interesting. You are. You are because you're acknowledging that the rocks are alive. You're acknowledging the spirit that's in the mountain above me. You're acknowledging the spirit that's in all the trees. And the land, and, and, and you're acknowledging the spirit of the water as a relative. Fire, fire is a relative too. It's not a destructive force, but it's a relative and a medicine that was put here for us to use to renew the land. So uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's a completely different worldview. And then by the time, yeah, they done, they're done taking my series. So it's four classes, right? Four. Uh-huh. They're just like, yeah, they get it. They're like, wow, I get it now. I can see what you were saying in the beginning, you know, and it's a that's, beautiful language. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible, man. I mean, uh, that's uh, that's incredible. Uh, I mean, I'm super glad to hear someone is doing that. And I mean, to be actually just talking to the person one on one, I'm, I'm very honored to be able to, to talk to you, like I said. Um, <clears throat> really quick. Uh, we're running out of time on this one again. I know you said you wanted to do a, uh, a song uh, before we wrap it up. Uh, so one thing we could do is uh, we can run down the time we have, take like another 10 minute break and we come back uh, and you do your song and then, you know, we wrap up or I don't know if you have enough. I don't know if you could do all that in three minutes. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to sing one bird song and then I was going to talk about what it means. So we could do that actually in the three minutes we have. Okay. Yeah. If you want, go ahead. Okay. Let me grab my rattle real quick. All right. Brother, anyone who doesn't know, Miss uh, Mr. Magical is going to sing us 
a beautiful song. And for anyone that can see that pretty mountain back there, um, I gotta have William describe it to me again. I, I forget what it is, but it's one of the sacred, sacred mountains to the to the tribe. And um, yeah, this guy's just a wealth of inf information, is he not? How about that airline food? Anyways. Okay, here we go. Two minutes, Thursday. <clears throat> so I'm going to sing a bird song, and the bird songs are our way of connecting to our ancestors that lived thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. And also our creators who created the world hundreds of thousands of years. We don't even know how long ago it was, right? Um, and so they created these songs for us. And then every subsequent generation also created songs for us to remember and connect to them for healing and for strengthening our communities and our identities. on us the night took me of the night paish the, the sun the sunset it's coming on us it's starting to get dark it's starting to get dark is what it's saying and um, so we have a lot of songs like that where we can translate them directly some of them are in really really ancient form of the language it's it's hard to translate but we look at the context of one song you know compared to a song cycle of hundreds of songs right Right. So we're able to um, understand the journey and the direction that the songs are taking. And we sing these all night and we dance to them and we have a good time. And the energy that's generated is what's uh, the, the, the community needs, right? It's what they, they, they need to, to remain resilient community, strong Indian communities. I love, I love it, man. 